Uh, as I said, I'm very excited to be speaking to Rachel Lowry at six o'clock. Um, she's now with the World Wildlife Fund, and there's a big project going ahead with the regenerate uh, regenerate uh, uh, habitat, and um, yes, yeah, one of the biggest regenerations uh, programs in Australia's history. And this is relevant. Uh, the, the platypus has lost 22% of its habitat in just 30 years, leaving it likely to meet the criteria for threatened species, according to research by the, led by the University of New South Wales and commissioned by the Coalition of Conservation Groups. The research compiled all the available data on platypus sightings from a range of sources. It found the decline was worst in areas like the Maori Darling Basement, where the uh, natural river systems have been modified by humans. Dams over extraction land clearing, pollution and predation by feral dogs and foxes were among the main threats which together could have caused half of all the platypuses to disappear according to researchers. There is a real concern that the platypus populations will disappear from some of our rivers without returning. If rivers keep degrading with droughts and dams, said UNSW's Richard Kingswood, one of the lead authors of the report. We have a national and international responsibility to look after this unique animal and the signs are not good. Platypuses are declining and we need to do something about the threats to the species before it's too late. The egg-laying mammals range has been most dramatically uh, slashed in New South Wales, where 32% of the uh, habitat has disappeared. Queensland has lost 27% of the platypus uh, habitat, while Victoria has lost 7%. The research commissioned by the Australian Conservation Foundation, ACF, the ACF, WWF, Australia and Humane Society International have now officially nominated the platypus as threatened after both federal and uh, New South Wales environment laws. The nomination will now be reviewed before a decision is made on whether the species will be listed. While our national environment laws should be stronger, listing the platypus as a threatened species is a critical first step, step towards conserving this iconic Australian species and put it on the path of the recovery, said Dr Sinclair from the Australian Conservation Foundation. The platypus is already listed as near-threatened in the International Union for Conservation of Nature, IUCN, red list. It is listed as endangered in South Australia and has recently been recommended to be listed as vulnerable in Victoria. 3MDR 97.1 FM. Pressing buttons frantically here because the lovely Rachel Lowry has just phoned me promptly at six o'clock. Ah, now your chief conservation officer with the World Wildlife Fund. Been a while, isn't it, Rachel? Last time I spoke to you was at uh, the Zoos Victoria. It has been, I think, about two years, perhaps. Yeah, I, see, I was just seeing um, you. You've been um, with the World Wildlife Fund since uh, 2019, and here we are at the end of two, 2020. My goodness. What a year, hey? <laughs> it sure was, yeah. And um, you had the similar role at... The, talk, talk about your fantastic career and all your all the strings in your bow to start with. <laughs> well, well, talk about some of them because you're just, just a busy lady and I'd just like to say at the, straight off the bat, um, thank you for your... Yeah, you've been always been very generous for your time and I remember Zoos Victoria, you... Um, you're, if you weren't available, you always managed to find nom- nominated somebody to uh, to speak about a certain subject. Yeah, no, thank you for all the interest that you've shown, and um, many of the campaigns that I've led or supported over the years, I've always appreciated it. And still at it, still campaigning, but yeah. I'm at WWF now, yeah. as you say, and the um, Chief Conservation Officer role. So it's been um, it's been a good fun 
20 months now since I joined that organisation. And, um, yes, I think I first got in contact with you, um, Don't Palm Me Off, a campaign about palm oil. That's right. Oh, I was in Malaysia um, and Singapore well, two years ago now, and I thought I'll just get a nice little bus ride from Singapore back to Kuala Lumpur, see the nice scenery. The nice scenery is like endless kilometres of palm oil plantations. It's so depressing, isn't it, Rachel? Yeah, it is. That that area has been decimated, and I think the, the what makes it even sadder is that now those palm oil companies are starting to, you know, cast their eye to PNG and you know Papua New Guinea and the Democratic Republic of Congo next. Oh, and really? Yeah. They're both just such really precious biodiversity hotspots, and I just hate the idea that we're going to lose another suite of species and nature to these monocultures. It's yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. And, um, yeah, most of Malaysia's like that. I was talking to a lady in Sarawak, and she said the uh, same thing. It's all like that, and there's a few minor, minute uh, reserves for the poor orangutans who've lost their, lost their um, habitat. It's just so depressing. It is, it is. And, I mean, I just, I've just always hoped that the certified sustainable palm oil system will pick up and be well adopted and well enforced. You know, it's been a hard one because they have worked out how to develop palm oil in a way that means you don't have to lose native forest um, and well-established forest. It just costs a little bit more, which is why, you know, I think consumers are willing to pay that little yes. bit more. It's not heaps, it's not heaps extra. Um, but, you know, you get one or two bad farmers doing the wrong thing and it makes the whole certification scheme look terrible and that loses confidence in the market and so that hasn't helped but based on my opinion I still think that certified sustainable palm oil which I think needs another name like I need to call it orangutan friendly palm oil or something <laughs> yeah. like that <laughs> Good on you, Rachel. Um, it needs a rebrand yeah. but I, I still think it, it's the way forward um, because if everyone just boycotted palm oil completely which it's, it's the most common oil in all our foods we would likely switch the soy, and that's grown in the Amazon, and so we would just be robbing Peter to pay Paul. Yes, yeah. Um, also, wipe for wildlife. Who can forget the um, crap man? Yes, that was such a fun campaign, and <laughs> the zoo is still the, the zoo is still running that. I keep in touch with the oh, zoo yep. very regularly. I was there for such a long time, and they were such a big and, and beautiful part of my career. So, um, I'm I've been loving hearing where their campaigns are at. They're going from strength to strength, which is great. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, as I said, you're a busy lady. Committee member for Parks, Parks Victoria isn't just one of them. Yeah, yeah, I am. I really enjoy that, that advisory role. Um, you know, those guys have a huge responsibility. They're looking after our national parks. Um, these are our protected areas, and we want to make sure that it's done well, right? And so I learn a lot from being on that committee, um, that's for sure, and just... Yeah, I think it makes me better as a campaigner and a conservationist when you're able to not only share um, and provide advice in those committees, but learn from other scientists that sit on them. It's, it's been really, um, really fun. Yeah. Advisor for Threatened Species Commissioner. Well, you were until um, last... I was until I joined WWF. It gets yeah. a bit tricky being an advisor. So I did that for four <laughs> years. Yes. Uh, it gets a bit hard being an advisor for government when you're running campaigns, to, uh, you know, calling on government to step up and do more. So New Victoria is a statutory authority. So they um, 
they're basically reporting to the minister. So the type of campaigns that you run at a zoo are, can be very impactful, great campaigns, but they're, they're very rarely asking government or holding government to account because statutory authorities find that quite a hard job. That's why you need to have environmental non-government organisations as well because ENGOs are not beholden to government and so they can speak fearlessly and frankly um, and it's a bit hard to be an advisor and be running a campaign against the uh, government at the same time. Mm. Another fantastic uh, uh, position you had was out in, um, in in Africa educating people. I remember the, what was that, uh, beads, beads, uh, what was that? Oh, yes, the Beads for Wildlife. Beads for that was Wildlife, yes. Consultant, yeah, some consultancy work uh, across, that was in Eastern Africa where we were working with a very special community in Kenya who were being impacted quite um, terribly by a long, long drought and they were losing their livestock and so we were able to establish a community trade campaign where people in Australia could buy beads from a lot of leading Australian zoos, actually. A lot of them came on board. And it sent millions of dollars back and really just gave them reprieve. They were able to uh, reduce the headcount of goats, which meant they weren't walking. But they were, you know, some of the people in this community were having to pull their kids out of school so that the kids could walk further and further and further so that the goats could access water. Um, but by getting income from the beads, it helped the community get through that really hard time. That was a, That's a beautiful program, and I think that the zoo still sells those beads in their store. Yes, I bought some at uh, Wirribee Zoo. Yeah, they're beautiful, aren't they, Rachel? They're good. I'm actually looking at some now. They're hanging off the wall in my, my study, yeah. um, and every time I look at them, it just reminds me of beautiful, beautiful time spent in Kenya yeah. um, with communities that just, you, you know, you spend... Um, a couple of weeks in a community like that and you take nothing for granted when you come home. Yes. We, how long, you were there quite a while, weren't you? Uh, I think probably only three weeks the first okay. time that I, I went to that program. I, I, you might be thinking of uh, Zimbabwe. I worked yes, on that program on and off for five years. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I, I loved that program. That program was more about helping um, communities, rally communities behind saving lesser known species. So there were seven species that we were um, trying to basically get communities to stop laying snares and um, instead protein farm to actually grow their meat rather than go out and, and eat wild meat. Yeah. Uh, and it had some success across some patches. It, was, um, it, it had some, some success and in other patches it failed due to often political interference. Yeah. Yeah. The uh, Tiki Highwood Trust in Zimbabwe, they just found it, yep. That's them, yeah, they're a beautiful group, they do good work. Last but by no means least, but uh, nonetheless uh, related to uh, sustainability and recycling, the St Kilda Mums, you're a volunteer there as well, Rachel Lowry. I am, yeah, <laughs> I'm a, what they call a drop-off zone. So I, I had this moment in my career where I thought, you know, I feel like I give so much of myself to nature and wildlife but I had this little nagging feeling constantly. I wanted to do more to help refugees and just people who were less fortunate than me, but I had so little time. And when I had my, my second child and was on maternity leave, I started to reach out and volunteer for St Kilda Mums. They do just incredible work. They help often women um, who have had to leave uh, violent homes, um, due to family violence or refugee families who have come across and are literally starting with nothing. And they take all the goods, the baby goods of those like 
like me, who are very fortunate, um, but still have many, many years to give. And um, they repurpose them and package them up and drop them to those families that need them most. And, um, you know, some of the, the feedback that you get back from the families is it's life-changing stuff, you know, helping a mother at a time when she can't afford a cot or a pram. And so since I've gone back to work and my job is quite full-on and full-time, I've changed the way I volunteer there. So I'm now at a drop-off zone. People in my area drop to my house and then I, I take it once a quarter yeah. down to the warehouse. And there's a website, isn't yeah. there? People contact the St Kilda Mums. There is. Yep, people go through St Kilda Mums and they'll, they'll work out where your local and nearest drop-off point is and you can take it from there. Yes, because um, babies, they, they don't stay babies for very long, do they, Rachel, as you'll probably attest to? No, they don't. And I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only mother out no. there that can say that Sometimes they wear things once, and that is it. And then you, you know, you're packaging it up, thinking, "Oh my goodness," you know. Um, I actually didn't. I, I'm someone that tries not to buy things new, my own clothes yeah. included, and and my children. So I often bought secondhand from op shops or baby markets or from friends that gave me hand me downs. And even then, the clothes were still in perfect condition by the time my kids were done with them. So it's the way to go. Yeah, my daughter lives with us. Uh, with her, also with her son, my three-year-old grandson, and um, we are just talking the other day. She's, he's got this basically pristine cot, which he hardly used, and now he's three years old and running around like a, a young fellow, and, yeah, he hardly used this cot, and, uh, yeah, so, yeah, you just got to pass it on and recycle it, really, haven't you, Rachel? That's right, and look, and, and there's always someone in the community who's next in line to have a baby, so that's the way it goes, right? Most of the time, you just hand it on whatever we we just should never, ever send them to landfill. No, uh, not no. until they're on their absolute last legs. And even then, uh, there's always more you can do to restore them, usually. Yeah. This is 3MDR 97.1 FM. Um, my name is Graham Buell. And the lady on the end of the phone is uh, Rachel Lowry, Chief Conservation Officer at uh, WWF, the World Wildlife Fund. And uh, that was a similar position you had at Zoos Victoria. Well, I remember I used to speak to you, and you, had, you changed your title several times at Zoos Victoria, Rachel. Yeah, I think that's... That's true. When you and I first met, I was um, community conservation manager at the zoo, so running their campaigns. And then the next time we spoke, I, I stepped into the director role of conservation. So, um, that, but that was the role I was in until I finished up at the zoo two years ago. Yeah. And yeah, now I'm in the chief conservation officer role, and it's it's, it's great, Graham. I'm really enjoying it. I've got a terrific team. Good. It's a national role, so I'm yes. I'm enjoying being able to campaign nationally and take on big systemic issues um, that are really important to Australia and I'm working with just a really bright group of people who all have the same values as I do and it's yep. always nice to find, I mean, not that I did, wasn't in my tribe at the zoo, I, I love the zoo people, but um, yeah, it's been nice just to learn, learn yep. in this job. It's one of the reasons I left, I wanted to learn more. Do you miss being a zookeeper? You were a zookeeper with the seals and the elephants, weren't you? Do you miss that or you moved on from that time? I don't miss it. I enjoyed it. I'm so glad I did yes. it. But even when I was a zookeeper, I think I always knew, you know, animal welfare and, and being around animals is something I enjoy very much. But I was wanting to, I always had this hunger to fix things and to help make the world a better place. And um, campaigning is the, the avenue I've chosen to do that. And so I just love campaigning. Cool. 
Uh, so the we come to, actually I've got you on to talk about Regenerate Australia. I spoke to the oh, message you a week or two ago, and you're passionate about this Regenerate Regenerate Australia. Out of the ashes of last summer's devastating bushfires, WWF Australia has nurtured a bold vision to regenerate Australia. This is a chance for us to restore and revitalise our country for the community. It's a it's a mammoth. It's going to be a mammoth effort. Probably the biggest one in, in Australia's history. Is that correct, uh, Rachel? Yeah, well, this is the largest um, landscape restoration and um, regeneration campaign Australia's ever seen. So it was pretty exciting to launch that, which was launched about four weeks ago. Um, and it's the, it's the largest campaign I've ever been involved in, Graham, and it felt like the right year to do it. Um, I'll be honest, there, there were times over the winter period where we had to do some soul-searching because we thought, is it the right time for this campaign? We're in a global pandemic. We've just gotten through bushfires. We don't want to seem tone deaf and at the same time just we've had this accelerated rate of loss across Australia. We were already before the bushfires Australia's leading um, extinction nation for uh, mammal extinction. So, yes. you know, losing mammals faster than anyone else. We were already a global deforestation hotspot. So that was declared in twenty eighteen. Australia's the top eleven nations in the world clearing landscape faster than anyone else. So um, that was before the bushfires, and we're the only developed nation in that global deforestation hotspot list. So, you know, we kind of have a choice to make here in Australia at the moment. It, it's quite a pivotal moment. We can choose to just stay in this cycle of loss where we're losing species and land, uh, land and, and having land clearing faster than ever. It's getting faster every year. Um, you know, something I learned last year was the koala was made vulnerable in eastern Australia. So across Queensland and New South Wales, they're not holding up well. And they were listed as vulnerable under the EPBC Act. Now, the reason you list a species under the National Environmental Law is to help it out, is to sort of signal, let's be careful. Since it was listed, we have accelerated the loss of its habitat across yes. eastern Australia. So the system's broken and... We, we need to decide. We want to stay in that cycle of loss or do we switch and move into a cycle of gain? And if we're going to regenerate and shift into gain, then we need big, big changes. And we went and um, teamed up with Damon Gamo and the team at 2040. Have you seen that documentary, um, Graham? No, I haven't. No, I must check it out. It's a beautiful documentary. It's all about pollution. Writing it down. I'm writing it down right now, 2040. Write it down. Yeah, you, I think you'll love it. I really do. It's it's about trying to change the environment narrative away from, well, let's not just talk about what we need to stop doing. Let's start talking about what we need to start doing. Let's talk about what a positive, sustainable future looks like. And it's a beautiful documentary. Anyway, he's a great storyteller. And so we um, worked with him to go out and listen to fire-affected communities and to traditional owner groups um, and a whole range of Australians and just... It was literally that. It was a listening campaign. It was a couple of months of just listening. And, yes, I just felt very confident it was the right time for this campaign. People are quite anxious after the bushfires. COVID hasn't wiped the memory of the bushfires away, um, thank goodness, because we need to remember it. Um, we lost good, good science, peer-reviewed science um, out of University of New South Wales tells us we lost over 3 billion animals during those bushfires. Crikey. And um, the Botanical Gardens have done some research, over 7 billion trees, and we think that's conservative. So it's just a huge loss for Australia yeah. uh, in one bush, bushfire season. And our climate scientists are telling us to expect more of earlier onset fires, um, more frequent and higher severity uh, as the planet warms. 
So, you know, like I said, it's time for a choice. Are we going to just accept that or do we turn it around? And that's what the Regenerate Australia campaign is about. We've worked with lots of scientists, lots of stakeholders and communities. We've done a lot of listening and trying to put solutions on the table. We're sharing a vision for Australia that's, I think, a smarter and better one than than the future we're heading towards at the moment. And then trying to get government to make investments behind some of those big arcs and rally community support behind it. I read this article out off God of the ABC yesterday. <clears throat> you mentioned koalas, but the platypus, also an iconic Australian species, has lost 22% yeah. of its habitat in the third last in the just 30 years, not just recently. And um, yep. the ACF and the WWF Australia and Humane Society International have now officially nominated the platypus as threatened under the both federal and New South Wales environment laws. Very sad, isn't it, Rachel? Yeah, I think the platypus has been a silent um, victim of those recent bushfires, Graham. Like, with koalas, there's no doubt about it, they were the icon and the flagship species. You know, we watched, we turned on televisions and we watched people run across roads yeah. and literally take the shirts off their back to help them. And I, I've got to say, I felt just so um, proud of Australia during that time. It was a hard time, but it was so nice to just see how connected we still are to nature and what we're willing to do to protect it when it's literally burning right in front of us. Um, the challenge we have with platypus is when they suffer, it's more silent and more invisible. And all that fire and all that ash has to wash somewhere. It goes somewhere and it goes into our fresh water system. And then that takes oxygen out of those waters. Yeah. And, um, you know, polluted water is not a good thing for platypus. And so all the science and the research that we've commissioned is certainly indicating that they are in trouble and are going to require some targeted interventions. Listed, uh, listed as near threatened as the internet in the International Union for the Conservation of Nature Red List IUCN, and um, just mentioned the threats: dams, over extraction, land clearing, pollution, and predation by feral dogs and foxes were among the main threats, which together could have caused half of all platypuses to disappear, according to the researchers. Ah, Rachel. I know, I know. It's hard sometimes, and it's been a hard year for that. It's been taking those moments to sigh and go, oh, it feels overwhelming, the, the scale of the loss, and just the decisions that are being made. You would have thought after we've experienced those fires that we would just start to see some, I don't know, smarter green stimulus packages to help get the economy moving forward instead of business as usual, etc. But there is movement at the station. I've been really, really heartened by some of the state government's decisions around investing in renewables in recent months. There has been some great, great decisions made by Tasmania, New South Wales and Victoria in particular uh, in recent months. So we're starting to see some proper commitments coming from state governments. We still need to see more movement from our federal government on climate, that's for sure, but the states are taking charge there. Mm. And on biodiversity, look, the solutions are there. We've just got to find a way to motivate government and the community behind them. And that's what the Regenerate Australia campaign's about. So one of the projects under Regenerate Australia is um, actually working to double the number of koalas by 2050. And it's, that's, uh, you know, and that's across uh, Eastern Australia where they're in trouble. And it's a huge undertaking, but it has to be done. Yeah. You know, I, I think the prospect of losing koalas across Queensland and New South Wales, like, we're not going to sign up to that, are we? So, you know, we need to start now and turn it around. And another project under the Regen Australia campaign is um, Renewables Nation, which is looking at, you know, 
calling on the government to actually set a 700% target for renewables, you know, just switching our domestic use is too easy. We could do that very easily, but we're actually the second largest exporter of thermal coal in the world. Yes. So when our government tells us that we're just small, we're small, we're small players, don't worry about us, we don't have a lot to do with climate change, it's just not true. We're the second largest exporter of thermal coal in the world. Yeah. And that exposes our economy because... When I, the first thing I did when I joined WWF was conduct belief solicitation research. We went out to climate scientists and coal economists and um, social psycho- uh, conservation psychologists. And what I heard from the economists was a lot of countries are starting to take the Paris Agreement really seriously. They're weaning themselves off thermal coal. And it will be a market that dies from natural attrition. People will eventually invest in enough R&D to work out how to export renewable energy. Now, Australia's got a choice to make. Do we want to be the one that works that out so that we can be the world's largest exporter of renewable energy? Or do we want to wait for China or you know, Indonesia or somewhere else um, to work that out? And then our, what, you know, the thermal coal sales that our economy is built around and that we rely on will suddenly end and then our economy is really exposed. So it makes good sense from an economic position to take that action, not just from an environmental position. So, yeah, lots of work ahead for Australia, but the opportunities are huge there. You should be a politician, I reckon, Rachel. Add add that string to your bow also, Rachel Lowry. (laughs) Oh, my goodness, Graham, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think maybe I'll I'll, I'll stick in a science-based campaign, I think, to try to... Trying to get politicians to, to yes. make the right choices. And believe in scientists. Oh, my goodness. <sighs> anyway. If we listened to our scientists, we would not be where we are right yeah, now exactly. in this spot of bother with that cycle of loss. And I think that was hard, you know. When I um, joined WWF, there was a climate scientist called uh, Professor Leslie Hughes, and she's excellent. She's such a good climate scientist. And she kept saying every time we talked about risk, are you working on all your field sites to make sure that you're thinking about increased frequency of fires? It's going to happen. And I was like, oh, yes, yep, got to do more there. And sure enough, before those fires really picked up, she'd said, just be careful. Keep an eye on the science. We're going to see bigger fires earlier with higher intensity. So just be thinking about that when you're choosing feeding, planting locations, etc. Wow. And sure enough, and I thought about her a lot yes. um, while those fires were burning, and she said, I just hate the fact that so many of us had won the government and, and we just didn't feel listened. Yeah. Listen to. Uh, getting back to koalas, um, as, as you said, the populations uh, are now listed as vulnerable under the federal environment law. And um, the other day, yeah. Federal Environment Minister Susan Lay announced a range of, range of measures to help pr- protect koalas in an $18 million package. Uh, is the WWF receiving any funding, may I ask, Rachel Lowry? No, no, we're not for that, but we will be collaborating with them on the koala surveys. We're really keen to get those, um, those figures post-bushfires. So we know that across New South Wales and Queensland, the population is estimated at about 35,000, which might sound like a lot, but it's just terribly low um, when you look at the rate of decline. But we don't know post-bushfires what the population is. So that's a, you know, something that we're really keen to work with them on. Rachel Lowry, I love your enthusiasm. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. And we actually didn't even meet yet. We kept on planning to meet at uh, Hillsville Sanctuary, didn't we? But anyway, it will happen when it happens, yep. It'll uh, happen. And how can people uh, 
her help with this uh, Regenerate Australia project. Uh, World Wildlife Fund is always uh, up for um, or great, or all uh, donations are gratefully received, no doubt, Rachel. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's certainly been a change for me from working at a zoo where people pay at the gates, and so that's um, and of course people donate to the zoo's campaigns as well. But then being uh, in a charity that's fully fledged and 100% reliant on donations, um, you know, it it makes a difference. It really does. We need stronger environmental organisations right now. We need our organisations at absolute full strength, uh, and so certainly donations always help. As always, I, I still say to people, don't discard the importance of a petition. Um, okay. You know, I've seen, I've seen huge changes come out of petitions. People, the governments do keep an eye on them, um, and there's nothing better than just direct communication where you write, you know, you write directly. Um, so I'd be encouraging people to let our government know that, you know, we want to see a bigger, larger nature-based response to fires. They committed $2 billion to nature-based response. Less than 10% of that has gone into environmental response, nature-based response. So that'd be a good place to start. And, um, yeah, calling for that 700% target. Let's make Australia a big you know, energy powerhouse, a renewable energy powerhouse. We can do it, but the government needs to hear the public want it if it's going to happen. Rachel, as I said, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, and um, you're inspirational. Oh, thank you, Graham. It's always um, so lovely speaking to you as well. I appreciate the support. I really do. Yeah, no, we'll have to make it sooner instead of two years. I can't believe two years has gone past. <laughs> yeah. Do you get many trips overseas, do you, with the WWF? Uh, not a, a lot. I've been here for two years. I've, I've had two in two years. One, um, I went across the Solomon Islands and got to interview um, communities being impacted by climate change, and yes. that was a very moving um, and confronting experience, but there's a very different narrative across our Pacific Island nation than there is in Australia. No one starts by saying, assuming climate change is true. They're just they're seeing it firsthand. And then the second one, I went across to America to learn about um, impact investing, believe it or not, how we can try to um, commercialise solutions to environmental problems so that we're not constantly relying on donations. It's something every... Charity wants to try to work out, but uh, none of us have quite cracked it yet. Yeah. All right, Rachel, as I said, wonderful to talk to you and uh, keep up the good work and all power to you and your uh, organisation. And yeah, we'll do it again soon, hopefully. Thanks, Graham. Yeah. You too. Cheers. Yeah, all the best. And yeah, I'm, I said, I really appreciate your, your generous time for such a busy lady. It's always a pleasure, and we're all busy. We've all got the same number of hours in the day, Graham. Yes. We just fill them the best way we can, hey? Strive for the uh, one solution of a better world. Good on you, mate. Thank you very much. Cheers. Catch you soon. Bye. Bye.